Good morning, everyone, from wherever you're watching this morning. And we're looking at James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Uh, and the story goes that a, a rich man and a poor man walk into a church. The rich man is dripping in gold. Literally, his fingers are covered in gold. You could say the original gold finger. He's clearly very wealthy and probably holds an important position in society. Whereas the poor man, his clothes are filthy and torn, and quite frankly, doesn't smell too good either. And the question is, how will you treat each one of them when they come through the door? Will you make any distinction between the two? Or let me throw out another pairing. Suppose that Donald Trump and Beyonce walk into a church. I want you to be honest with yourself. Will you welcome one of them more than the other? Even going back to the rich and poor distinction, would you be dismissive of the rich person in all of their bling and instead favour the person with not much to their name? Pause and think. Are you making distinctions? And if you are, what standard are you using to determine how you will treat each one of them? James is observing issues like this in the early church where Christians are treating each other differently based on their status or their circumstances. They're making distinctions between one another. And this is what's called partiality. And James confronts the issue head on in these verses and he calls it a sin. You see, there's no place for partiality in Christ's church and hence the life of anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We live in a society that's obsessed with identity. There's a seemingly insatiable appetite to make all sorts of distinctions between people. And this is done in the so-called name of diversity and inclusion and equality. And, and I've worked in organisations where these ideas are pushed as moral imperatives and as training courses to spread the doctrine. And whilst you might think that identifying and then elevating all oppressed groups that you can think of will address the ills of society, I would actually encourage you to, to examine that premise closely against God's word. Any solution that leaves God out of the picture is doomed to failure because radically different and conflicting moral standards are mixed up in all of those issues. And any efforts that we might make to favour or promote one group inevitably alienates and demeans another group. So the sin of partiality is alive and kicking in the 21st century, just as, it much, just as much as it was in James' day in the first century. And, and why some of the problems that James addressed in the first century may well have been flipped on their head in our day, when we think about the sorts of distinctions we make between rich and poor, ultimately sin is still sin. The offence is against God, and there's only one problem and only one solution to sin. And that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. While some of the problems that James addressed in the first century church may well have been flipped on their head in the 21st century, in our day, when we think about distinctions we might make between rich and poor, ultimately sin is still sin. The offence is against God and there's only ever one solution to the problem of sin and that can be found in the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning I want you to set aside all the distinctions and classes of people that you might make that are swilling around your head 
And just for the next few minutes, try and hear what God has to say about the issue of partiality. And we're going to look at a definition of what partiality is. We need to understand what that looks like. We need to understand the consequences of partiality, both on ourselves and others. And then finally, we'll come and look at the solution to the problem. So we need to start with God's law and his impartiality to understand why partiality is a sin. James was writing to Christians in the early church who at that time were mainly converted Jews and they were still meeting in synagogues. These are men and women steeped in a knowledge of the Old Testament, in particular the Torah or the law. So they were really familiar with the concept of impartiality and they knew that impartiality was rooted first and foremost in God's character and then by extension his law. And James refers to this law in two ways in the passage. In verse 8 he calls it the royal law and in verse 12 he calls it the law of liberty. And two, two ideas are captured here fundamentally. One is that the law given by God has ultimate authority. It's a royal law because it comes from the King of Kings. And number two, in our fallen nature, we see the law as unnecessary constraints which prevent us from enjoying life. But contrary to popular opinion, God's law actually sets out the necessary boundaries for human behavior that promote human flourishing. You see, the law enables us to live a life in all of its fullness, both pleasing to our creator and to our neighbors. And we'll come back to this at the end. But for now, the law sets out a standard to live by and by which we will all be judged. We live in a fallen world and inevitably laws are broken. But anyone who ever faces justice expects and, and demands and wants a fair trial. And we can be assured that God who is just is also fair. In numerous places throughout the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy 10, 17, we're told that God shows no partiality. And this is something that Paul picks up in, in the New Testament in Romans 2, 11 and in Ephesians 6, 9. In Luke 20, 21, the chief priests and the scribes recognized this very same impartiality in Jesus' character. But what does it mean to be impartial? If you turn back in your Bible and read Leviticus 19, verse 15, it says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So here we have a legal setting and God has specific instructions about how justice is to be executed. The law is to be applied to everyone in exactly the same way, regardless of who they are or their circumstances. So on the one hand, the poor aren't to be let off the hook just because they don't have wealth or status. And equally, no favor is to be given to the rich or powerful in spite of their status. God judges everyone on exactly the same terms in accordance with his law. God has no favorites and this is righteousness. And it's what he expects of all mankind in the execution of judgment. In fact, this concept of impartiality is enshrined in the laws of our land. And if you have a look at some of the statues of Lady Justice outside law courts, you'll see that she's standing with the sword of retribution in one hand 
and a set of scales in the other hand. And if you look at her face, what do you find? Her eyes will either be closed or blindfolded. Justice is blind. Justice is to be carried out according to the evidence and the facts. The ruling shouldn't depend on the status or the circumstances of the individual. So when every person who has ever lived faces God on the final day in judgment, we can be absolutely certain that God will apply the law with impartiality. There will be no favour granted to anyone on the basis of status, wealth, skin colour, nationality, sex or any other distinction that we might make. God will judge justly based on whether we've complied with his law or not. To do otherwise is partiality and a sin. And like all sin, partiality has consequences both for ourselves and for others. In this passage, James points out four consequences if we treat some people more favourably than others. Number one, one of those consequences is that we set up our own standard for judging others and we appoint ourselves as a judge in place of God. In verse four, it says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So who do you avoid or who do you esteem? And by what standard are you forming those views? Is it a biblical standard or is it your own standard? Number two, we demean and dishonor those whom God has chosen and our fellow heirs in Christ. In verse five, it says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But you have dishonored the poor man. We know that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And what we may see as a filthy, smelly human being, God sees as a person for, for whom, God sees a person for whom he has sacrificed his son. And if that person has faith in Christ, then God sees the glory of Christ's righteousness and not the tatty clothes. Number three, one of the other consequences of deferring to the rich and the powerful is that you put yourself at their mercy. And ultimately you can actually end up being exploited or hurt by them. You maybe thought that doing them a favor, you could get ahead or get a step up in life, but it can come back to bite you. It can backfire. In verse six, it says this, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? How many times do we see this playing out in life? Perhaps in a work setting, someone carries favor with a senior executive. For a while, their career seems to progress in leaps and bounds, but then some situation arises which actually shows the true and the less pleasant nature of the boss. And suddenly the junior person is dumped on the scrap heap. And finally, number four, a final consequence of this sin of partiality and not recognizing it is that we are deceiving ourselves. You might think that you're doing well and loving your neighbor as yourself, but in fact, you're guilty of breaking the whole of God's law. In verse 10, it says, for whoever keeps the whole law, 
but feels in one point has become accountable for all of it. And this is a, a really important thing that even the slightest uh, contravention of the smallest of one of God's laws is sin. So we may not have done anything as terrible as run off with someone else's wife or husband. We may not have murdered anyone, but we've still sinned and we still stand convicted by God's law of that sin. So having recognized the partiality of sin and that it has negative consequences for our relationship with God and others and can do harm to ourselves, how do you then become impartial? How do you become able to truly love your neighbor as yourself? James at the end of this passage comes back to the only means that we have to be free from the sin of partiality. And if you read verse 12 and 13, let me just read them. It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is pointing out is the way in which God's law now applies to Christians. It's a law of liberty. Or maybe to put it another way, Christians are set free to live by God's law. We're set free to live by God's law. When Christ died on the cross, his death satisfied God's impartial judgment for our sin. And, and that judgment requires that we're cast out of God's presence for eternity. But when we place our faith in Christ, his mercy triumphs over the judgment that we deserve. And the, condemn, the condemnation that we deserve is set aside if we're in Christ. And we're then set free from the judgment that we deserve. But this freedom in Christ comes with a responsibility. We will still be judged as Christians against this law of liberty. And there will be rewards on the final day. Jesus himself said that we are to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And one of the things that we really need to get to grips with as a Christian is that we are free to choose to not sin. Before we experienced God's mercy, we had no other option. You know, the Bible talks about us being slaves to sin. We, we couldn't do anything but help ourselves from sinning. But in receiving God's mercy, we've been given new hearts and a new nature. And that sets us free to choose whether to sin or not. And also in that, it sets us free to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our strength, and it sets us free to love our neighbours as ourselves. Uh, Paul emphasises this in Galatians. In, in Galatians 5.13, he says this, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The mark of a Christian is love. The love God has so graciously shown to us in his mercy needs to flow out of, out of us to others, irrespective of their status or circumstances. So in conclusion, this passage begins and ends with faith in Christ. 
God has set a standard for all human beings to live by. And we will all be judged by that exact same standard with complete impartiality. I'm conscious that I'm speaking to two types of people this morning. There are those who are holding to faith in Christ. And there are those who aren't. This message boils down to this. Have you taken personal responsibility for breaking God's law, even if it's just that you treated someone unfairly in the past? Have you confessed your sin to him and have you received the mercy that Jesus purchased for you by his blood on the cross? And if you're a Christian, you can't claim to know Christ and continue treating some people better than others on the basis of their status or circumstances. How are you doing with impartiality?